we find Paul and Silas have uh, been on our missionary journey and they arrive in Thessalonica, a Greek city of Thessalonica. And they've been, um, they've been run out of just about every town they've gone into. They've, been, uh, they've been, had stones thrown at them. They've been put in prison. They've been beaten. Um, and now they, they arrive in this town of Thessalonica in Greece. And they begin, as always, to preach, to teach, to share with this community the good news that the Son of God has come into the world to seek and to save those who are lost. Good news, great news. And of course, as the Spirit of God moves upon those who hear this message, numbers of believers come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But there are some people in the community who are not happy about this, about this change. They're not happy about Paul and Silas and those, those that are receiving their message. And so they, they, they want to bring them before the, uh, the, city, the courts, the city council, the governing body. And, and there they describe, they describe Paul and Silas. When, when they say, those men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. As followers of Jesus Christ, as, as those who bear the name of Christ, if we would be Christians, let us aspire to be people that others would say of us that we are they who turn the world upside down. Think about that. Think about what that means, what that looks like. And, and, and be certain, be certain it does not mean going along to get along. It doesn't mean being part of the crowd, following the crowd doing what everybody else does, being what everybody else wants to be. Today I want to talk a little bit about how God's Word would lead us to be a people who turn the world upside down. We continue in our study in the book of Ephesians today as we read in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
those of you that uh, have heard me teach and preach and been around my, uh, my teaching, you may well already know which word in that first sentence I'm going to start off with. Then. Then. What does then tell us? Then, the word then, helps us to set what we're reading in context. Very important. And you know, we kind of do a little bit of injustice to these biblical books when we cut them up into pieces and, and uh, talk about them in these uh, 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 little passages. Because this is one letter. It is one uh, reading intended for those who receive it to read the whole thing at one time, and it all goes together. There, there, are, not, there are not 32 sermons in the book of Ephesians. There's one. And, and each of these passages that we deal with are dependent upon that which has already been written and precede or have impact on that which follows them. And so we read here then, look carefully then, because chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Ephesians set before us the basis, the foundation, the reason why we should live as chapters 4, 5, and 6 teach us to live. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us the reality, the reality of what God has done, what God has accomplished, and how God has accomplished His purpose, His will for the lives of His people. And so it is that chapter 1 starts off that tells us before the foundation of the world, before God ever created anything that exists within the available, available to our five senses, God had determined, God had predestined those whom he would elect to be his people. to be his children, to be adopted into his family. This was the, the God accomplishing his purpose and his will for the lives of his people. The, the, the book turns then at chapters 4, 5, and 6 to express to us how, how what God has done impacts or how it applies then to the lives of his people. And so this is written to Christians. This is written to the followers of Christ. These, this is written to those who have believed and placed their faith in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is written to those whose names have been written down in the book of life among those who are elect by God's grace for His glory. And so our text this morning, dependent upon what has gone before in chapters 1 through, one and three, one through 3, the, the setting forth of the teachings, the doctrines of God's accomplishing His purpose for His people. Chapters 4 and 5 up to this point, applying what God has done into the lives of His people. Chapter 5 tells us, be, begins telling us, Therefore, 
be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so the text that we're focusing on this morning in verse 15 and following is dependent upon what, what has been written before this, therefore telling us this is to be imitators of God. And so what we're reading today is, is some of how to go about doing that, what it looks like, what it means. How do you be an imitator of God as beloved children? There's a lot of walking that goes on in Ephesians. Have you seen that? Notice that? Everywhere you turn, we're being told how to walk. Well, I'm not much of a walker. I know it's real popular these days. I suspect some of y'all have a Fitbit. Am I saying the right word here? Okay. And, and, uh, and you probably count how many steps you take. And, and these th this seems to be a very, very popular thing to do. I, I hear the people at work comparing. Compare, how many steps have you got? I got, you know, 17,864 steps. I think, Lord of mercy, I ain't walked that far my whole life. But in Ephesians, walking is not about our Fitbit. In Ephesians, walking is how we live. It is our life. It is uh, literary language speaking of how we live. Therefore, be imitators of God, beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loves us. Now, we're going to get to verse 15. Stay with me. We'll get there. But then, as, as, as the writer, as Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, is giving us an understanding of how we go about doing this, what it looks like, how we live to be imitators of God, we get to verse 6. And I think verse 15 and following is, is very dependent upon verse 6 that tells us very specifically, very pointedly, absolutely. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Now, why would God tell us this? Why would God be so emphatic, so straightforward in telling us that to not be deceived by promises of empty words? And the reason is because it's a, that's a reality. That's, that's a real thing. That's a real possibility. As a matter of fact, it's not only a real possibility, it's a real actuality. It happens, and it happens a lot. Unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever, I was born into this age, and in the course of my six and seven years, it seems like it happens more and more. The, the opportunities, the occasions, the, the manners, the channels in which God's people, remember, Ephesians is written to those that have been adopted into God's family. And, and, and so it is that this family for which we are concerned here, that the manner in which the world and that which is in the world is set out to deceive God's people, to, to draw them away from obedience, from, 
doing, being what God has called us to be. And so we're told very straightforward here, do not be deceived. Empty promises. They're empty because they're promises that have no potential, no possibility of ever being fulfilled. It's a lie. And these empty promises, these empty words are all around us. How then shall we be sure that we are not deceived with empty words? Look carefully then on how you walk. Look carefully then on how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. So may I summarize up to this point, the book of Ephesians, one letter, one writing intended for the readers to read in one setting to hear the whole message. A poor excuse for a summary. In view of the work of God to accomplish the forgiveness of your sin and to give you a new, eternal life, live out your days in these days, in the example God has set for you of sacrificial love. Don't be deceived. Don't be distracted by promises that have no possibility of being fulfilled. But give attention to what you say and do. Consider all according to the wisdom God has given you. Make every minute count as a child of God. Now, as we're given this proposition, as we're given this, this call then to, to look carefully then how we walk, then we're given some understanding of, of how that happens, what, what's required. But first of all, we're told how it's not done. We're told that which we, we would avoid if we would look carefully on how we live our lives. We would not be deceived. And so, so we're told right off the bat, because the days are evil, it has long been a question for philosophers, certainly in the, in the Western world, uh, among um, Christian philosophers. The question being, is, is mankind, is humani humanity, fundamentally good? Or are people fundamentally bad? And what arises out of this question, then, is this idea of, throughout history, then, if, if, if mankind is, is fundamentally good, then, then you're, you're moving away. You're moving towards what would then be worse. But if mankind is fundamentally bad, then there's, <laughs> there's room for improvement, right? And so it is that the course of history 
records mankind getting fundamentally gooder. So we came up to the late 19th century. That would have been like 1880-something or 90-something. And philosophers, Christian theologians, are beginning to answer this question that mankind, the world, is becoming a better place. We're getting better. And we're getting better because of the evidence of the world around us. What was the big deal of the 19th century? Industrial Revolution, right? And, and what follows on the Industrial Revolution is the uh, elevation of the middle class uh, economically. And so the philosophers and Christian theologians are beginning to look around them and see that in the Western world, people are better off than they were 100, 200, 300 years ago. So obviously the world is getting to be a better place and it's because it's a better place because we are getting to be better people. And as a matter of fact, we are getting so much better that we are on the verge, here we are in 1880, 1890, we are on the verge of ushering in the millennium. What the Bible calls that thousand year reign. And it's going to be ushered in because of how good we have become. And then came World War I. The worst calamity to ever have been faced by the modern world. And the philosophers had to write some different books. And when World War II followed very closely on the heels, which only because we're, we're so close does it appear to be two wars. It was one war. The philosophers had to give up on that and recognize that if, if we can drop atomic bombs then maybe we're not as good as we thought. Folks, the Bible says, God's word says, the days are evil. Now regardless of what philosophy you read, what theology you want to follow, how you personally feel, what your opinion is, God says, recognize, understand, experience the, the, the course of your life in an evil world. Don't be deceived with empty promises, with empty words, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Be careful. Be wise. God has given you a gift of wisdom. Don't blank out 
but rather use the wisdom that God has given you. And understand very certainly, don't flee from the truth. Drunkenness will steal your wisdom. Drunkenness is a robber that will steal your wisdom away from you. Drunkenness is a thief that takes your care, your carefulness, and how you walk. Drunkenness makes empty promises that can never be fulfilled. Drunkenness leads to the unfruitful works of darkness that are shameful even to speak of. Do not be foolish. But understand the will of the Lord is don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Look carefully then how you walk. Understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God has given us the gift of His wisdom by giving us the gift of His Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God abides, lives, stays with, camps out, kind of a good term, with believers in Jesus Christ. He is with you always. Surrender. Surrender to the leadership, the guidance, to the voice of God the Holy Spirit leading you in those paths of righteousness for His namesake. The wisdom of God is the presence of His Holy Spirit. Surrender and find in that surrender, a life of joy. A life of joy that overflows in who you are, overflows in the joy of the fellowship of the saints, over, overflows in the, the, the singing of the hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord in your heart. A, a, a life of, of satisfaction, of fulfillment, a life of joy and and, and happiness and knowing that the Spirit of God is with you to guide you always, knowing that you have, have appealed to the wisdom of God and the Spirit of God, that you would not be deceived by these empty words and promises, that you are living a life that is careful, not as unwise but as wise, knowing the days are evil and recognizing the bounty. Do we use the word bounty these days? I mean, besides the fabric softener, bounty. Recognize the bounty, the, the, the richness, the magnitude, the abundance, the great heap of God's blessings in our lives. And it's not stuff. I like stuff as much as the next guy. 
but it's not the stuff where we see the blessings of God in our lives. It's the blessings of the forgiveness of sins, the blessings of the presence of his Holy Spirit. It's the blessings of the gift of his wisdom, and it's the blessings of the fellowship of God's family, his people, those who have been called, those who have been called in his name, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it is, it is, it's not something that you work at, but something that just comes out of you in this fellowship of the saints, greeting one another with joy, hope, fulfillment, giving thanks always. We have so much to be thankful for. We're coming up on the Thanksgiving season. We'll, we'll talk a lot about Thanksgiving. But we have so much to be thankful for other than turkey and dressing. I wish I hadn't said that. It's way too close to me. Submitting. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, y'all know that I, I talk a lot about context. Uh, this is a phrase that in context goes with what we have just read. It's, it's part of that, that direction, that understanding of how to live a life where you look carefully. But it's also a phrase that goes with what follows on. And as a matter of fact, it's a, it's a phrase that is very much consistent with a major theme of the New Testament. Submission is, is one, of the, uh, one of the ideas that just permeates the, the whole text of the New Testament. It is a frequent emphasis. In Romans chapter 13, we find that we are called to submit to the governing authorities. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Submission. Ephesians 5, coming right on the heels here, we're going to talk about submission. Wives, submit to your husbands. 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. 6.5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Submission is now going to be a, a significant theme throughout the remainder of, of chapters five, or 5 and 6. Hebrews 13, 17, it's all about church, and tells us, obey your leaders and submit to them. Right? Repetition for emphasis, obey and submit. You're not obeying if you don't submit. You're not submitting if you don't obey. 
So submission is a, a major theme in the New Testament. One of my favorite um, uh, events in the New Testament, the life of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, I think it was in Caesarea, a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, officer in the Roman army, comes to Jesus and he has a, a servant at his house that's sick, paralyzed, he says. And uh, he asked Jesus to heal his servant. Jesus has been healing people, and this fellow wants Jesus to heal his servant. Jesus says, absolutely, I'll go with you to your house, and there I will heal your servant. And the Roman centurion says to Jesus, he says, I know that's not necessary. I know it's not necessary for you to come to my house. You, being a Jew, would then... Uh, have, have done something contrary to, to Jewish law. Um, he says, but just say the word. Say the word and, and my servant will be healed. And the Roman centurion says to Jesus, he says, I know this. He says, because I too also, I also am a man under authority. And because I am a man under authority, what I say for men to do, they do. This says, Jesus marveled at this. That's one of the reasons I've always found this such a significant passage. Because when Jesus marvels, something important's going on here. The Roman centurion understood that because he lived a life of submission under authority, that he then had authority over those who were in submission to him. You don't obey, you aren't submitting. You don't submit, you aren't obeying. And he understood, he understood that Jesus had authority, he had power to accomplish what he said because he understood that Jesus likewise was a man under authority. That Jesus was also living a life in submission to his heavenly Father. And Jesus marveled at this man's understanding of who he was and what he was accomplishing. And so it was that the, the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Spirit of God to write in Philippians chapter 2, no doubt a text you're very familiar with, but which gives us the understanding of the importance, the relevance, the need to submit to one another. Philippians 2.4 begins, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If it's good enough for Jesus, if it's good enough for God the Son, it's good enough for us to reverence for our Savior, reverence for our Lord. doesn't come easy. It, 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 it doesn't come naturally. Sinners by nature, sinners by choice, disobedient by our nature. And as we have been called into Christ, we've been forgiven of our sins, we give, we understand that we are being sanctified by the Spirit of God. And if we read Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, where we're told there's, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it might well lead to a, a sense of, hey, do whatever I want. There's no condemnation. I'm free. And it, and it could well have been these, uh, these people in Ephesus, these new Christians, the, the, the new church there at Ephesus to, to whom Paul was writing, they, they, they didn't have a New Testament. They, they didn't have uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They didn't have uh, all of Paul's letters. All they had was the testimony of, of the evangelists and the, and the witness of God the Holy Spirit. And likewise, I mean, it could, have been, it could have been confusing. This whole thing about drunkenness and debauchery, that was a part of their life. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how things happened in Ephesus. There's no condemnation. I've been saved. My sins are forgiven. Why can't I keep on living like I was before? So the Spirit of God and the Apostle Paul leads them to understand be obedient. We have a rebellious nature. We continue in a rebellious nature, not being wholly sanctified. And if we would be obedient, if we would live in submission to one another, it requires a different nature. It requires an obedient nature. It requires overcoming this rebelliousness that is so intrinsic to who we are to start with. It is a nature that has to be sought after. An obedient nature that we would desire and having desired that we would nurture. An obedient nature in which we would give continuous, careful attention. For it is our reverence 
for Christ. Living in submission to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are imitating God. Living in submission to one another is how we imitate what God has done for us. Living in submission to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are portraying to the world what it means to be children of God. This is how we look like our Father. Living disobedient life of submission to one another. Walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so our life of submission comes before God, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to him. Amen. Because I'm telling you, understand that we would desire, we would want, we would nurture this nature of submission and obedience, but it is a sacrifice. And so this sacrifice sounds something like what can I do for you? Rather than, this is what I want. A sacrifice of self-will. A sacrifice of my rights. It looks like yielding what is rightfully yours to the advantage of someone else. Such is this sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of self-pride. It feels like I am so glad that someone else got ahead. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is sacrificial love. And sacrificial love turns the world upside down. Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving for the power of your word and the presence of your spirit. In Jesus' name.